0: and welcome to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast for a special episode to mark Ed's Circular Economy Week, kindly sponsored by Zero Waste Scotland. Coming up on today's episode, Zero Waste Scotland's Executive Director and Chief Executive Officer, Ian Galland, discusses the state of play for resource policy in Scotland as England forges ahead with the Resources and Waste Strategy consultations. Circle Economy's Senior Consultant, Tamara Veldboer, gives a behind-the-scenes look at the circularity gap report. Walgreens Boots Alliance's Vice President for CR, Richard Ellis, explores the links between plastic packaging and climate change. And TechMet's Chief Technical Officer, Simon Gardner-Bond, shines a light on whether batteries that we need to power the low-carbon transition can become truly circular. Yes, a very warm welcome to today's edition of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. I'm Edie's senior reporter, Sarah George, um, and I'm delighted to be joined in the COVID-friendly virtual content studio um, by content editor, Matt Mace. Good morning, Matt. How are you?
1: Good morning. Yeah, really, really well, thanks. It's been a it's been a good week, hasn't it? Um, lots going on, not just in the well, circular economy, but a lot of government stuff as well. So it's been busy, but it's been a fun week
0: yeah same like i'm definitely ready for the for the weekend but it's been super energizing and really interesting we're recording this introduction on the day that this episode is airing so that's friday march 26th after a jam-packed circular economy week campaign if you've visited the ed website or twitter at all over the past few days you have seen that we've been kept more than busy there have been video interviews linkedin live sessions exclusive features some free downloadable reports three online inspiration sessions and of course lots of policy and private sector news to, to cover it sounds a bit like the the 12 days of christmas song there now that i'm reading it out Um, We host Circular Economy Week in recognition of the fact that humanity is currently using 1.75 Earth's worth of resources every year and that the majority of this material is not properly recirculated. Although resource efficiency might have dropped down the agenda during lockdowns last year, here in the UK at least, the feeling is that we now have some time to refocus on this crucially important issue. Matt, after a week-long campaign like Circular Economy Week, I know the urge can be strong to down your tools and move on to the next thing after a little rest and reflect at a later date. But I thought it would be worth going over some key takeaways briefly now so we can set the scene. Um, so what was your personal highlight of, of this week?
1: Yeah, um, I think it was it was certainly the, the online sessions, the just how energised the chat was. And you mentioned that it feels, feels like the circular economy has kind of fallen down the agenda in the UK. And uh, it, was, it was a question that a lot of our audience had to ask. Um, obviously, I chaired the opening session, the Q&A panel. Uh, we've re the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, um, ERP UK and uh, Innovate UK and a lot of the questions that came in for businesses were very much oh you know this pandemic has thrown up challenges around xyz and I asked the question had it fallen down the gender? and I think there's just a great sense of optimism on that that first session around that actually the panelists felt that it hadn't it hadn't fallen down the gender. and it actually The pandemic had kind of strengthened this this uh, circularity process. Sure, you know, things like single-use coffee cups have increased over the pandemic due to restrictions uh placed on businesses, but actually there was a sense of sharing and a sense of community, a sense that we're all in this together that can actually be replicated in terms of um the consumption of stuff. Um there was examples about how you know local local kind of swap shops were set up for any kind of surplus um, items, and you could like, book clubs and, and whatnot that, that kind of kept that that sense of community. And basically, I think even though a lot of the questions that came in from businesses were very much how how can I start on this circular economy, how can I get the circular economy in the boardroom, how can I implement a strategy, the the message was clear is that um, if you don't, you're not going to you're not going to exist in the future your business model isn't it doesn't function in this next normal whether that's driven by policy or not you, the, the 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 facts you mentioned at the start paint the picture that things have to change and i think the the leading businesses are realizing that and their roles certainly the global companies are to encourage their local communities their suppliers and the smes they rely on to go on that journey with them and i think that's just a really Good sense of, of optimism that actually circular economy hasn't kind of fallen off the agenda considering how big it was, certainly around plastics in 2018-2019, actually there's just this air of inevit- inevitability about it.
0: Great, well I think that's really positive to set the scene, and you've mentioned there the intersections between the circular economy and between resilient supply chains and between engagement um, and bes- between being an a activist company, or at least a company that has well-engaged consumers as well. Um, for me, the takeaway was what I got from recording this podcast, which is touching on the intersections between the net zero transition and the transition to a circular world. So these things are both happening in tandem and they both feed into each other. But that might not be immediately obvious or widely recognised yet. And my personal highlight, not not just to shamelessly plug the rest of this podcast, um, was probably putting together together this episode. And yeah, for today's episode, we've got a bumper crop of interviews. We've got four of them, so it's probably best that we get right into them. In the first part of this episode, we're taking a broad overview of the state of play on the circular economy, looking at how circular the world truly is, what that has to do with climate change and where businesses and policymakers are helping and hindering. Our first guest speaker is Zero Waste Scotland's Executive Director and Chief Executive Officer, Ian Galland, who is of course an expert on all of those questions. So without further ado, let's play that talk in full. Yes, hello Ian, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. How are you?
2: I'm good, I'm good. Thank you very much for, for inviting me.
0: No, thank you for, for squeezing squeezing in in the time. I presume it's very busy for you guys at the moment.
2: Yeah, just a bit, or it certainly has been the last few days, uh, so various things are going on, and obviously year-end, but planning ahead as well, which is uh, equally exciting.
0: Mm-hmm. Fantastic, and obviously anyone that's been tuning into our webinars this week and looking at our content knows a little bit um, about about Zero Waste Scotland, but it'd be good to hear that in, in your own words. So perhaps an, an explainer, given that this is Circular Economy Week, about the organisation's Circular Economy Philosophy.
2: Yeah, uh, so the circular economy is is to us it's it's critical uh, in terms of reducing global emissions. For just the way that we you know produce, consume, and, and waste our natural resources is for us the real crisis. It creates the climate crisis that we've got in terms of carbon emissions. It obviously is having a huge impact on biodiversity loss. But it is all about how we are over are over consuming the Earth's natural resources. So for us, as uh, set out in our corporate plan at Zero Waste Scotland as we, we really, you know, our first aim is to tackle that consumption, uh, thinking about how do we change design? How do we think about procurement? How do we get both consumers and businesses to demand materials and products in a completely different way? And then after that, it's about the kind of how do we tackle production? So how do we think differently about that? you know, the design of the system. So, you know, how do we sell or lease products? Uh, how do we start to think about closed loops for the return of material? Uh, thinking about leasing and servicing. So at the heart of that, that is the circular economy. We are going to have, consume or use materials. How do we make sure that we, we bring them back into circulation after they've been uh, deployed? Uh, and ultimately, at the end, it's about how do we maximise the value from from waste? Uh, so that's, you know, more about the kind of recycling uh, platform that we, we support here in Scotland. Uh, so all of that leads to kind of focusing on the key materials. So things like metal, cement, food, textiles and plastics. Uh, that then leads into us working strategically with some key sectors in Scotland, energy infrastructure, food and agricultural, bioeconomy, you know, the built environment construction industry, for instance. So that's how we kind of you know start to work. So it is about trying to reduce consumption. Uh, and we recognise, as I said, that you know there's a huge opportunity through things like procurement to shape that, uh, but also skills. So you know we do a lot of work to try and not just obvious skills uh, in terms of uh, you know circular economy businesses, etc., but also just raising awareness in every business uh, around the need to think differently in this kind of net zero ambition that we all have, uh, and trying to create more you know circular strategies, you know regardless of what business you're in. Uh, is just making sure that we're, we're tapped into that.
0: Mm. So it sounds like it's a whole life cycle approach and there's some forward planning as well. But the bit that you mentioned there that really struck me and fits with the theme of this podcast is that intersection between um, the circular economy and the, the climate crisis. And this has got a lot more attention, I think, in recent in recent times um and you touched on it so i wanted to hear about how the organisation measures that that link and how it helps the organisations that it works with to to understand and act on 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 climate as well as as well as waste and resources
2: yeah it's, it's interesting so and the kind of starting point for us is to, to engage with everyone on that on our uh, unfortunate statistic that 80% of scotland's carbon footprint comes from the materials and products we take, make and dispose of, half of which are actually, you know, materials and products that we bring into Scotland from overseas. So it's not just about how, you know, we reduce our operational carbon, you know, our territorial emissions here in Scotland, but it's actually, it is about the materials that we use. So we're thinking, you know, get across the message of unburied carbon. So I think that's, that's our starting point. Uh, And I think you're right. I think certainly from governments, not just Scotland, but, you know, there has been obviously an immediate focus on the decarbonisation of energy, decarbonisation of the transport, very much looking at that operational carbon. Uh, And we need to do that. Absolutely, we need to do that. Uh, But it's probably been a slower uptake and people beginning to think seriously about that embedded carbon and how do we reduce it? You know, that's that's the work that we've been involved in, because that's about that consumption piece. Uh, and getting people to think differently about, you know, how they procure, what, how do they use things, how do they, you know, what happens at the end of life. And but I actually do think that businesses are are really switching to that now. There's much more momentum uh, in this space. I think it's obviously been led by some of the big corporates, where I think there's questions being asked by, you know, consumers or citizens uh, around the transparency of their supply chains. There's obviously, you know, people understanding mm-hmm. where where the materials are made. Who's making them? So there's like a social aspect to it, but also what 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 are the you know what's the impact of those, those materials right through the supply chain? So I think a lot of corporates are now you know challenging themselves, challenging their supply chains, are much more you know you know want to be more transparent about that, and I think that's driving you know certainly a lot of the businesses we're talking to now are very much switched on now to this. You know are beginning to understand that it's not just about what they do in their operational carbon. You know, sure, in terms of their energy and their renewable strategies etc and you know even thinking about transport but actually thinking about the materials they use and you know thinking about you know what they can do differently and that is leading them to, to become or certainly you know focus on ideas around circularity and the use of resources both at a local level or a Scotland level even but certainly understand what they can do to change that so I think it's it's certainly beginning to happen uh, and you know obviously it's, it's helping us. Certainly, in terms of engagement with the businesses we, we work with, and now government, who are obviously beginning to pick that up as well, in terms of thinking about the materials, not just in Scotland, but you know the impact, you know globally.
0: Oh, I'm, go- I'm glad to hear that's going on behind the scenes, because very often I get a corporate sustainability report, and it has the carbon footprint, and then it has the materials footprint, and they're just in completely different different sections. So it looks like we're maybe still at the awareness stage, and some leaders are still at the measurement and reduction stage.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that's right. I think, uh, you know, and I think there's still a bit of that. And I'm not saying it's, it's. I think it's just because they recognise it is harder to, you know, some of them, you know, to get the transparency of the materials that they're using, particularly in manufacturing, production, where it's coming from, you know, and the, the measurement of some of that in terms of the carbon impacts is still possibly at an earlier stage. Uh, and, you know, people are a wee bit, you know, I'm not saying afraid, but they're just a little bit hesitant about, you know, talking about this openly, but you know, I think you're beginning to certainly some of the sustainability professionals we talk to now are very much aware of it now. They just say, look, we need to get this, we need to get this under control. We need to start reporting on this. We need to start making those links because I think as I said, you know, particularly people who are you know concerned citizens, you know, people are asking those questions. Mm-hmm. You know, people are picking things up and saying, Yeah, but what you know, how much carbon has gone into the production of this, you know, and that's you know, whether that's you know future labelling Opportunities, but I think you know the, the smart people recognise that now, and you know we can't we can't gloss over it and say well it's all right once you plug it in you know uses renewable energy, but actually the you know the real the real impact of this is actually the production of the product. Then you know people people are getting wise to that and people are asking those types of questions. And I know that you know public even the work that we've been doing with public procurers. You know, they're beginning to think seriously about this as well, you know, and obviously things like the built environment is clearly where, you know, a whole bulk of embedded carbon is, you know, is poured in, you know, as concrete. Uh, and, you know, what does that mean for the, not just for the, you know, the, the design of buildings, but, you know, what does that mean for the supply chain uh, and to adapt to a different different way of building?
0: And and you mentioned that this is not only coming up the corporate agenda and the public agenda, but the the public sector and, and the government um, as well. And I think it's a good time that we're having this call because here in here in England, I've got a million and one emails about the resources and waste strategy, um, which applies to England and all the consultations that are going on um, at the moment. So I thought it'd be good to check in with you about what regulatory reform is going on in this space in, in Scotland at the moment.
2: Some of the, uh, things that have been talked about south of the border are already in train here, as you know, I mean, obviously big, big feature, I think, of the recent consultation around EPR. Uh, will be a deposit return system. So, you know, Scotland has uh, already put regulations in play uh, for a deposit return system uh, to be implemented next year. In fact, uh, Circularity Scotland have just been appointed just as of yesterday as the scheme administrator for that scheme next year. So, you know, it's great news taking take another massive step forward. We've, you know, obviously there's the, the EPR, uh, regulations that are under review at UK level will apply to Scotland because Scotland does does uh, you know input into that. The plastic tax will be done at UK level. So some of some of what's happening inside the border is, is certainly of interest to us. But up here, I think you know waste has been a, is is a devolved issue where you know we have regulations in place to, to increase you know the material that's been collected separately for recycling. There's a lot more opportunities around public recycling as well as business recycling. Uh, Would definitely you know harnessing a lot more of that uh for you know both economic gain and social gain here in terms of reuse and repair uh we've government's just launched a 70 million pound recycling improvement fund which is all about you know the next phase of recycling uh, for Scotland to, to invest more in infrastructure, but again, harnessing the circular economy opportunities. So that that's what's really significantly changed, where I think in the past we were all very much focused on recycling rates and getting material out of landfill, which clearly is all very important. But you know, the, this recent investment is very much tied to that The ambition around climate change and that ambition around the circular economy. So what, what materials can we get out? What can we do with them in Scotland? And how can we reprocess, repurpose them back into our economy? So it's really trying to look at things from a different lens. It's not about waste. It's not about recycling rates. It's actually about the economy desires those materials, you know, in terms of where we want to go, whether that's, you know, metals for renewables or other infrastructure, you know, that we need to build or develop here in Scotland. What are the materials and resources that we've got already in our system and how can we harness them for that kind of circular approach? So that's really where Scotland uh, is, is beginning to shift, you know, and, and the government embedding the kind of circular economy thinking, not just in the waste part of government, but across all the different economy uh, sectors.
0: That's all very high praise, but is are there any other policy asks that Zero Waste Scotland has? So anything that could be done done better in this space at the moment?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the some of the work that we we've been doing previously uh, was to support what the the, the Scottish government took forward. Our, Circular economy bill uh, that was due to go through parliament last year but unfortunately because of the COVID pandemic it was it was dropped from the parliamentary process so uh, there's obviously a big big hope that you know with elections in uh, six weeks time the, the, the new the new government will will look again at that you know bring forward that, that Circular economy bill which will help frame some of the you know some of the work that's already ongoing so sort of, you know whether that's you know, strengthening the role of procurement to, to kind of uh, mandate more circular principles uh, Well, there's opportunities to, to think differently about, you know, collection infrastructure for businesses on particular materials. Again, going further than we've already gone. You know, there's a big thing about regulation, can I get that, but I actually do think something has shifted, as I said in a previous answer. You know, I think businesses generally and the, the citizen are much more aware of this, you know, and much more, you know, taking recognition of the environmental opportunities or impacts that, are, that they might be having uh, at individual level. I mean, you know, in lots of reports during the pandemic about we've all kind of got a little bit closer to the environment, you know, uh, in terms of our walks and, and, you know, particularly you know last spring and summer we get being outdoors more because that was the only exercise we, we could get you know, but we did a survey recently that, you know, I think it was was about 90% of people were either recycling the same or more during the pandemic. People are much more engaged in the environment and climate change. Uh, I think that's obviously something we need to maintain and build on, you know, as we come through the pandemic. So I I think absolutely regulation is always, you know, kind of a backstop to, you know, making it a level playing field for everyone. But I think there's more of a kind of incentive now been coming from the public and from businesses, you know, the the net zero ambition that we have in Scotland, people beginning to, you know, align their their strategies around that. And that's not just big business, that's small business as well. We've obviously got COP26 coming to Glasgow uh, in November. Uh, That is galvanising, you know, not just chat, not just, you know, conversations about the environment and climate change. That is getting people setting up, businesses are thinking we need to be doing something, you know, we need, and it's not just to be seen to be doing something, they absolutely, you know, are beginning to want to implement strategies, not just have a strategy, you know, a one-page environmental policy, they're clearly wanting to do stuff, and that's a big shift for us as a business, because, you know, a lot of the past has been knocking on doors and trying to get people's attention around us, and now, you know, they're asking us, right, we want you to help us implement some actions, not just tell us what the actions should be, so, you know, in a way, we're really now supporting delivery. Uh, across a number of uh, areas of work. Uh, but it's also been driven a lot by people inside of businesses. I mean, I'm always amazed that, you know, clearly before COVID, I, you know, I visited a lot of businesses in Scotland. and When you ask them, you know, what, what was it that made you do this, whether it was a recycling system or a circular economy uh, approach, or even just, you know, doing something in terms of resource management or energy, energy efficiency, the number of times they'll say, oh, this was actually led by a staff, our staff were asking us to do that, you know. And previously it was all about cost. It was all about oh, you yeah, know, it was reducing costs clearly. Somebody came along and said you could reduce your your bills if you did X, Y, Z. But more and more this is you're hearing that, oh well the staff were asking, you know, or you know, I feel you know, we had a conversation about we need to be doing this or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's that's the big shift that we're beginning to see, I think we're clearly I I sense we're gonna see a lot more of that, you know, acceleration of people just thinking this isn't just about being seen to be green, this is the right way. This is you know, there's clearly, you know, said many times there's also a competitive edge because I think if you're in the supply chain of some of the big corporates, you know, they are going to be looking for this. They are certainly going to be looking for this because, you know, that's you know, certainly the, the, the direction of travel. That's the direction of travel for investments, you know, you know, within the next five years. We're, we're hearing that, you know, in terms of uh, not just bank investment, but, you know, pension beds as well. So. So regulation is important, absolutely, but I think it's now about how do we get kind of wind in our sails, so to speak, or, you know, get behind us, uh, this kind of real mood music, because I'm not a politician, but I know I've heard politicians say that regulation is all very well, but it takes a long time sometimes, but I don't think we have the time, and I don't think the appetite, certainly the appetite from businesses and the consumers, you know, is much greater, uh, you know, than it's ever been, and I think, we owe it to ourselves as you know, sustainability professionals to, to kind of get behind that and really push forward.
0: Well, that was a great snapshot of circular economy principles and the state of play in Scotland, which I think a lot of people see as leading the rest of the UK in sustainability terms. So thanks very much again to Ian. For the second speaker for part one of this podcast, we're moving from Scotland to the Netherlands um, and speaking to Circle Economy's senior consultant Tamara Veldboer. Regular ED readers will know that we cover the Think Tank's Circularity Gap Report every year. It's a really big, globally recognised report that outlines how many resources humanity consumes annually and how much we actually recirculate. As of 2019, the figures were pretty damning. Um, It's 100 billion tonnes extracted, of which just 9% is fed back into the circular economy. The report outlines how this is directly attributable to around 39% of global annual greenhouse gas emissions. So it's over to Tamara to provide a behind the scenes look at that report and to break down those big global figures into actionable tips for organisations. Yes, good morning. It's an absolute
3: pleasure to have you on the podcast today. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. And it's also really nice to be speaking to you this morning. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Anytime. We couldn't really have a Circular Economy Week podcast without... Without an organisation like like Circle Economy, and and yeah, I'm imagining that most people listening probably know the organisation for its big annual circularity gap, um, report. So a report tracking how how much resources is being used every year, how much of that is being recirculated, and what the climate impact of that is. So I'd love to know a bit about how how you contribute to that and and what you guys do other other than the report.
3: Yes, uh, happy to share that of course. Uh, so well as an organization, our goal and our ambition, our mission is to close the uh, to contribute to closing the global circularity gap. Uh, and so we do so basically in working with businesses, cities and governments. and I personally am part of the businesses team. So in my job I'm mostly working either in one-on-one engagements or in coalitions to help uh, companies take steps to, uh, well, basically what we say, embed the circular economy in their day-to-day practices, or how I sometimes phrase it for myself, to give hands and feet to that concept of the circular economy. So, uh, yeah, it's always quite interesting to see also this difference within, let's say, the businesses that we work with. uh, Because... In the end, circular economy as a concept has been around already since the 60s or the 70s uh, mm-hmm. of the century. It's just that since 2011 or so, when the Alan MacArthur Foundation came up with this coherence narrative of what it is and how it can contribute to also reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and we also definitely spot that opportunity and have a lot of eagerness with the, the the companies that we work with. Great, um, and I obviously thought that the report was a great fit for this episode, which is all about
0: the intersections between the circular economy and and the climate crisis. Um, so I've got our coverage of the, the report this year up and yeah, the stats are pretty harrowing. Um, the The emissions annually attributable to the production of new materials and products are more than double China's national annual emissions. So I wanted to ask, have you guys been tracking that link for, for previous editions and why it was important to really highlight that that
3: intersection this year? Yes, so indeed we have been um, creating that link between the circular economy and um, climate um, already from the first edition. So the first edition was launched in 2018 at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Uh, and basically there we already uh, saw that uh, there's this, this great link between Also material extraction and material, how do you say that, like production and and use. Uh, And there we even found out that it's like uh, 67% of global greenhouse gas emissions are related to material management. And considering that the circular economy is, of course, all about making smarter use of materials, so diminishing the inputs and extending lifetime and reducing waste, that's a huge potential. So uh, it has been a recurring threat uh, throughout all reports, but then the reason to also really put it front and center for this year uh, has partly to do with uh, the upcoming COP26, so the climate summit. So, of course, this year from many organizations and also from national governments, uh, it's becoming very clear that, okay, we have to act on climate now. Uh, And what we found is that the circular economy has this massive potential to contribute to uh, the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. So, yes, that's why I would say we now put it more upfront compared to, for example, the previous edition where we put the role of nations forward. Or the edition before that, where we took the industry perspective and, for example, did a deep dive on oh, what is the role of capital equipment and how could the capital equipment industry contribute to uh, reduced materials uh, and thereby reduced greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there definitely is that, that vibe in the run up to COP26. And we're going to be doing a lot on that um, this year. As you say, the, the framing of certain things has changed a bit because of that. Um, but with with this big picture on, in mind, so both COP 26 and the World Economic Forum look at where indeed these figures are about about the whole world. Um, so how can a business, for example, take that and and break it down
3: into the kind of action that that they need to do specifically? Yeah, that's a, that's that's a great question because indeed, uh, well, with with our report, we try to build this global narrative and put it on the global agenda, uh, and then. We also break it down, for example, with uh, circularity cap reports on a a national level. So, uh, like, for example, what we did for the Netherlands, where it came out to uh, by heart around 25% circular. And then, uh, again, perhaps even one level more specific is on the business level, where we sometimes also, or sometimes as as part of the offerings that we do, we have a so-called circularity business scan, where we help. Businesses to indeed define what what are the materials that flow through my entire value chain, and then where are our hotspots and how what is our baseline in terms of material use, and also then how where can we set our targets, what are our hotspots for change, what are the most material areas for us to contribute to realizing that circular economy? So is the potential in well, reducing the inflow of materials? Can we extend the lifetime uh, of our products or services, or even switch to services? Can we use well, waste as a resource? As we frame one of the, the key circular strategies on a, on a product level, I would say that from the business perspective, we indeed say that like, okay, if you first measure your baseline, if you know where you are, you can then formulate a clear circular vision for yourself, set targets, and focus on those hotspots where you can bring the biggest contribution from a circular economy perspective. So that's uh, yeah, how how we break down, let's say, the circularity gap report on a global level to the level of businesses. Mm-hmm. That makes complete sense. Obviously, companies might get accused
0: of greenwashing if they're doing a circular activity that maybe accounts for just one percent of their resources while ignoring the 99 percent.
3: Exactly. Yes. And that's also what we, what we find that uh, most of our uh, customers then find really insightful, that indeed you map this full value chain and also look beyond your your, let's say, company boundary. So we create a system boundary and we look all the way upstream to where resource is, resources are extracted. And if you then apply, and then becomes a bit technical, uh, the raw material equivalence, that also takes into account, for example, the materials that are used or the waste that's produced uh, before some materials even get into, well, if we take a manufacturing company before it enters the manufacturing walls, that's quite Insightful and uh, indeed, bringing realizations that that oftentimes it's the material impacts are in a different area than where they had expected them to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did want to talk a bit about this accounting baselining and and disclosure because, as you say, that sounds almost like a scope three indirect material footprint. It's- um, there and yeah when we look at footprinting and baselining often when you get a sustainability report and I flick through them all the all the time as part of my job we'll get um, a carbon baseline and a resource baseline and then progress against both but in your opinion could more be done in in linking them um, and dis- and disclosing that intersection because that's not something I've seen a lot of
3: well i found it indeed like a very uh, i find it a very interesting question uh, because I would say that well, the more uh, knowledge we have on this link between uh, climate and the circular economy, I would definitely definitely say that it makes sense. So in- instead indeed of more, let's say, the siloed reporting that in the end it's all linked and uh, that it can also probably even help help a business if they for themselves figure out where the link lies between resource use and how that translates into their greenhouse gas emissions, that potentially it could even make them more targeted in the efforts that they can take. And so that it doesn't become those perhaps siloed initiatives like, oh, here we're trying to reduce a bit of waste or be a bit more smarter about the materials that we use. And on the other hand, we try to be energy efficient. But indeed, like, what is that link? Do we understand it? And in that sense, then can we also act on it? So I would definitely say that that would be a valuable one to to bring forward,
0: indeed. Great, lots of food for thought there, but I know we're coming to the end of our time for recording. So thank you so much for your time and your insight. Thank you for asking me to share it. Yes, thanks once again to Tamara for all of her insight there. Um, That's it for part one of this podcast. Join Matt and I for part two, where we're going to be exploring the link between plastic packaging and climate change and asking how refillables could form part of the solution to both. Welcome back to part two of this episode of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast, a special marking Circular Economy week. After a scene setter in part one, we're going to be taking a closer look at how businesses are examining and acting upon the link between plastic packaging and greenhouse gas emissions in an exclusive interview with Richard Ellis from Walgreens Boots Alliance. But before we do, Matt, I hate to do this on a Friday morning, but I'm going to spring you some quick fire tea time teaser questions on this exact (laughs) Great.
1: Topic. <laughs> okay, I'm um well, I'm not ready, but I'm ready as I'll, I'll ever be. So. No.
0: Um. So first one. Um. According to WWF, um. Overall emissions from the global plastic life cycle will increase by what proportion by 2030? Is it 25 percent, 33 percent, or 50 percent? free. Oh, you're very optimistic. They've got it down as 50. Oh wow. Um, A key cause being just incineration outpacing recycling infrastructure, especially in in low-income nations. Okay. Second question. Businesses often say that plastic alternatives like glass or metal have a high carbon footprint across the life cycle, but they also benefit from higher recycling rates, um, which plastic does not. Of all the plastic produced in the world to date, what proportion has been recycled?
1: Eight percent.
0: So close, it's nine, nine percent. I
1: knew it was single figures.
0: Not much better, really, really, really damning. And the last one, I'm hoping that you know this one because it's from the Plastics Roadmap report, which you led on the production. (laughs) Um, We all know that traditional virgin plastics are made from fossil based materials, but do we know how much the fossil fuel industry is using plastics for its survival amid the low carbon transition? How much are oil and gas majors set to invest in plastics over the next five years?
1: 400 billion dollars.
0: Yes.
1: Very kind of uh, Dr. Evil style, isn't it? Pinky finger up.
0: Yeah. 400 billion (laughs) (laughs) dollars. But yes, the point of that quiz was not to embarrass Matt or to promote his report, although please feel free to download it. It is on the downloads portion of our site for free. I thought you were
1: going to say please feel free to embarrass Matt then.
0: Um, But no, the point is to set the scene for our discussion with Richard from the Walgreens Boots Alliance, which is the corporate owner, of course, of Boots here in the UK. In this talk, Richard is going to provide an update on the Alliance's progress towards its plastics reduction and recyclability targets, and talk about how it is intersecting these targets and reporting against them in line with its broader sustainability strategy. Um, it's a SDG-aligned sustainability strategy, particularly including SDG 13 climate action as well. So without further ado, here is that talk with Richard in full. Good morning, Richard. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. How are you?
4: I'm oh, very well, very well indeed. Nice to speak to you again, Sarah.
0: Yes and nice to see you too. It's very strange because normally I'd probably see you at our awards and, and forum <laughs> and it's been more than a year since any of us could see each other in person. Whereabouts are you calling from today Richard? Are you at home?
4: Yeah I'm working from home. I'm in lockdown like uh, everybody else is that, that can work from home. Uh, it's got its advantages and its disadvantages. Uh, I think um, it's good to to be able to, to come to your awards ceremony and to meet people and to network and find out what everybody's up to. It's not quite so easy uh, when you're on the end of a uh, a screen or a telephone. Mm. Um, But I think um, Microsoft Teams has been uh, uh, wonderful in in enabling us to to keep the wheels turning and to keep this agenda moving forward.
0: Yeah, for sure. I have really been enjoying online and there's pros and cons, as you say. But yes, it's very exciting that there is now a way out of this and hopefully maybe before the end of the year, fingers crossed, we can see people in person again. Um, I am aware that it probably has been coming up on a year since me and you um, last last caught up, especially on the topic of plastics, which is what we're here to discuss um, today. So for the benefit of the listeners, but also for me, who I feel a little bit behind on this, Um, Could we have a little brief recap of of the plastics commitments that Walgreens Boots has specifically here in the UK?
4: Yes, um, probably worth stating to begin with that uh, waste and recycling and plastics have become two separate issues. I think in in days gone by then waste and recycling was a, a sort of an umbrella term that picked up a whole range of issues that were connected with how uh, we use materials, how we recycle them, and the circular economy. I think that um, uh, David Attenborough and his television programs have had a lot to do with raising the consciousness of plastic and the fact that that that, that plastic um, uh, basically stays as plastic for, for for thousands of years and and the, the the problems it causes, particularly in the oceans. So. I I I think the first thing I should really say is that, that that very much uh we at Walgreens Boots Alliance have seen that that plastics and waste and recycling are, 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 are two separate issues now, mm. looked after by uh albeit some of the same people, but uh the impact that they're having is 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 very different. I think what we've done at, at Boots is is to say, okay, uh, let, let's look at where we use the most plastic, and where can we then start to make inroads and reduce the amount of, of plastic that we are responsible for. And as you might imagine, that's uh, bags, and it's also uh, Christmas gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that from our point of view. Christmas gifts are uh, an important part of our um, commercial strategy and in order that a gift looks nice then uh, we, we use an awful lot of plastic in terms of keeping the products in place so that you, you've you got something nice to, to gift to somebody. Um, so what we were able to do is really say look team that produces the gifts Can you be innovative? Can you think differently about the way in which we display these things? Mm -hmm. And uh, across the piece, um, they have done amazingly well uh, in terms of removing 270 metric tons of plastic from our Christmas gift range. Now, uh, I'm, I'm delighted with the progress that's been made, but I think also things that we've learned which we're able to put into practice in terms of other things that we do equally when you look at plastic bags we've now completely replaced them by uh, paper bags that are now made entirely from uh, recycled material and from ink that is also uh, non-harmful to the environment and We've sold them but the money that we received we gave to children in need so it's turned out to be a, a very good charitable uh, um, activity as well so i i think that the successes that we've enjoyed over the past two years have, have been because we focused upon christmas gift and, and bags which were the, the two highest profile things now Clearly we have learnt from that, and that learning we are sharing across the whole of WBA. Similarly, colleagues in WBA have been experimenting and innovating and in uh, Walgreen's case they are operating uh, with an organisation called Loop. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that uh, you receive uh, your your weekly shop and what you do is that the, uh, uh, you use the the products, and then you return the containers, they're washed and then used again. Now, uh, this is uh, uh, interesting to see how it's how it's being received by consumers, how easy it is uh, to uh, recycle um, the containers. Um, and I think from our point of view that, that that's uh, perhaps pointing the way that, that, that we might well go. Uh, so o- overall, and, and you can read all of these things in the CSR report. Um, I, th- I think we're um, pleased with the progress that we're making, but we're not complacent because we clearly know there's still uh, a long way to go. And I think that, you know, trying to persuade people to think about recycling. I mean, in the UK, it's reckoned that over just over 50% of of plastic is is not recycled and is just used once well we we have to change those sorts of attitudes yes there is something that 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 we can do and if we could remove plastic or find alternatives that's really good but similarly in some cases plastic is um something which can be helpful in terms of making sure that products don't get damaged in transit and things like cucumbers if we didn't wrap cucumbers in plastic then uh, we wouldn't really be able to enjoy cucumbers now is there an alternative can we do things differently and i think now that plastic is seen as a separate subject then i think what's starting to happen is that um we're we're able to spend a little bit more time thinking about uh, circular economy and, and 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 other innovative ways of operating. Mm.
0: I find that so interesting. So this idea that these are separate topics and this allows for more detailed conversations and commitments. Because yeah, I was looking through the commitments and there's separate ones on recyclability, recycled content, consumer engagement. Um, I particularly wanted to come back to that refill piece that you mentioned. So I'm sure that a lot of people are familiar with. Loop in the in the US. You mentioned that it's it's working, but it recently launched in the in the UK. And I remember getting a press release, I think a week or two ago, about Boots stocking through third party brand P and G um, refillable shampoo bottles and the refills um, for them. So I'd love to hear a bit more about plans for that in the UK and whether there are different challenges and opportunities in the UK compared
4: to markets like the US. I I think that there there are some challenges that perhaps people wouldn't uh, necessarily immediately think of. One of those is health and safety. One of the problems when you're trying to operate a refillable system is making sure that there's not any wastage. There there is no product that goes onto the floor. Um, The problem is that that when you've got um, retail outlets sort of shiny floors and shampoo then it's a recipe for disaster Uh, and particularly with older people. We did some research about three years ago um, to see what was the the main cause of um, customers and um, our colleagues uh, having accidents and the main problem was that we didn't clean up the spillages quickly enough so somebody would drop a bottle and it would go onto the floor and if we didn't clear it up straight away then the chances are somebody would come along and they'd slip over
0: so the benefit of loop is obvious then because it goes yeah. direct to door and then the G like, ones come in pouches that you fill yourself at home probably over a bath or a sink
4: yes now mm. um i think that um they're the sorts of things that that that, that we're thinking about now now clearly uh, i think it could be more uh, cost effective to be able to sort of do some sort of lock and load mechanism whereby you, you could bring along a, an empty bottle of shampoo and then fill it up. But the issue is that the technology has to be absolutely spot on because you don't want somebody bringing along a 200 millilitre shampoo bottle and then pushing 500 by mistake. Right. And. Uh, and of what happens to all of those sorts of things. Now, I'm not saying that that, that, that those things can't be solved, but what I'm saying is we need to, to be mindful of all of these sorts of things in terms of, of moving things forward. And uh, I think that um, the idea of pouches that people can take home, we, we have a project called the bathroom of the future. And, and one of the issues is that people, when they're in the bathroom, don't recycle in the same way that they do when they're in their kitchen. We're trying to understand why that might be, and how can we, with the products that we make, uh, encourage people uh, to be uh, more mindful of the need to recycle when they're doing what they do in the bathroom, as opposed to acting and doing what they do in the kitchen. Um, and, 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 And that is proving really quite interesting because it's about how do we use showers you know should we encourage people to have combined shampoo and conditioner because the amount of time we spend in the shower the amount of water that we use the Mm -hmm. the energy that's used to heat up that water you know water scarcity lots of hotels now have got um uh, shampoo attached to the wall which they top up now should that be something that happens in in the bathrooms around the world you know should we be talking to shower manufacturers so that showers only operate for a particular length of time so so um the 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 whole idea is that that it's 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 learning and understanding more about how people are behaving and what they do so that what we could try to do is to develop products that, that that then enable people to think more about the circular economy and to do more of the things which they should do. Fantastic.
0: And I wanted to come on to this there, because you talk there about the intersections of, for example, plastics behaviour change in water scarcity. And I know that um, your company, the broader sustainability strategy, it has the little SDG badges um, all over it. And for this episode, I wanted to touch a little bit on the intersection between plastics and the circular economy um, and climate action and, and net zero. Um, so I wanted to ask whether some of the things you're doing on, on plastics are going to bring out carbon reductions and how this all gets accounted for and how you communicate positives across the, the SDG agenda.
4: I think clearly if we're using less plastic, then we're using less energy. Um because we don't have to create as much plastic, so that must be good in terms of cost and it must also be good in terms of reducing c o two and this is where i th- I think the 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 solutions will come from is through collaboration uh being able to to work with others who are say manufacturers mm-hmm. uh, uh, and talking to them about how they might be able to deliver products to us. So for argument's sake, somebody who makes shampoos, can they deliver 488 in a big plastic bucket on wheels so there's no packaging? And we can then put them into our distribution centres. And then if a store wants five of a particular brand of shampoo, then they only get five as opposed to plastic wrap round bottles in in cardboard. Now. Now, that relies upon us working collaboratively with the manufacturers. It also relies upon other retailers having similar ideas and thoughts to us. So we can then say, look, Mr. Manufacturer, we'd like you to do things in this way because it will reduce the amount of packaging. And we are happy that we can then manage these products in a better way. So we... Are trying to solve the issues through collaboration and I think that you can see that there's a lot more talking through organizations such as the Consumer Goods Forum,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
4: Business in the Community and it's trying to pull people together so rather than it being all retailers together it's retailers and manufacturers uh, and, and I think that what what we're seeing is that we are we can make genuine progress when we collaborate. And if you start to to think about science-based targets, well, Unilever's scope one and two emissions are our scope three emissions. Right. So so therefore, um, by by working collaboratively together to reduce the amounts of plastic, to reduce packaging, to reduce transport costs, uh, helps helps everybody in terms of uh, the carbon footprint. And now the governments of the world have produced their their plans following um, COP21 in Paris. And we're starting to see some countries offering incentives, other, other countries uh, bringing in carbon trading schemes. Then if you're gonna be taxed, then what bigger incentive is there to work collaboratively together to try to find a way to uh, reduce the amount of plastic in things and to improve things such as waste and recycling so that you, we've, we've genu- genuinely got a circular economy.
0: Mm. And of course collaboration underpins all 17 of the SDGs, it's the 17th goal and I was looking at some of these collaborative initiatives before we got on the call, so for example the WRAP Plastics Pact here in the UK, the Consumer Goods Forums work in in, um, plastics as well here in the UK and then the British Retail Consortium's joint roadmap to, to net zero and you've done a great job of explaining why that's so important um but i'd love to hear there are probably people listening that want to know how do you choose a collaboration that is meaningful so how do you go beyond partnership for for partnerships sake and and, and do something with a real positive
4: impact in these spaces i, th- I think from our point of view then you, you look at the boots business we're a health and beauty retailer so um we we we're, we're not necessarily experts when it comes to things like packaging or Um, energy so from our point of view if we can find people that we can collaborate with and we can learn from them and so we can share our issues and we can chat about well this is how we're thinking about solving something then then everybody's benefiting and I think at the end of the day you know retailers will compete on things like like price and the advertising that uh, that that goes into uh, why this product is better than another. But ultimately, if we can't have a world that's worth living in, then uh, the, the 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 whole aspect of of, of competitive commercialism across retailers uh, won't won't be worth having. And so, if we can all improve generally the environmental aspects, the circular economy way that we operate then that must be for everybody's good. And it then leaves the the businesses to to stand or fall on the basis of of, uh, their products and their advertising, their marketing, as opposed to something to do with the environment.
0: Yes, thanks once again to Richard. Lots of food for thought on plastics action and climate action on a corporate basis in 2021 and beyond. That's all for part two of this episode. Join us for the third and final part where we explore whether the low carbon technologies that we need to deliver net zero are good or bad news for resource efficiency. The third and final part of this episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast, a special marking Circular Economy Week. In this part, we're bringing you a fourth and final exclusive interview. The speaker, this time, being TechMet's Chief Technical Officer, Simon Gardner Bond. For those who aren't familiar with TechMet, it's an investor focusing on developing sustainable value chains for critical metals. Aside from his role at TechMet, Simon is also co chair at the Critical Minerals Association's Working Group on the Circular Economy. Um, So what are we going to be covering in this interview, you might ask? Well, in the past few months, Matt and I have received press releases with headlines like these. EV batteries could be the huge waste mountain of the future. Are electric cars really greener? What about their batteries? And wind turbine blades can't be recycled, so they're stacking up in landfills. Simon's expertly placed to debate whether these claims are true or simply designed to deter action on decarbonisation. And to outline how technologies, systems, and policies can help ensure that circularity goes hand in hand with the net zero transition. If that sounds as exciting a topic to you listening as it did to us here at EDI, we hope you enjoy this interview. Yes, I'm delighted to be joined on this particular segment of the podcast by Simon from TechMet. Simon, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. I'm great to great to see you. Are you calling from from at home today? I oh, believe. Yeah.
5: I am. Yes. I've been home, working from home for, yeah, we've all been here for about a year now, haven't we? I think, it's, is it a year today? Yeah, it's a um, year, almost a year today, I think.
0: Well, lockdown started on the 23rd. Right. So, yes, by the time this episode goes live, it will be a, a whole year.
5: <laughs> yeah, pretty unbelievable, but here we are.
0: I know. Um, and yes, glad to have some time with you, because I know you must be super busy. Um, I was hoping to just get a brief introduction, really, because while we've been talking off air about what, what TechMet does and what your focus is, um, at the moment there might be those listening that are unfamiliar with TechMet. So it would be great to hear a little bit more about what the company is, what it does and yeah, where, where you joined TechMet from as well. Sure. Um, so TechMet is
5: an investment company and that's developing projects that supply the metals that are critical to the transition to more climate positive and sustainable economies, such as the electrific- electrification of mobility with EVs and increase in renewable energy and battery storage. Mm-hmm. Um, my background is I, I am actually a geologist uh, originally, um, so I spent a short while in exploration for new mineral deposits, but the majority of my career has been in various different roles within mining finance. And um I joined TechMed about two and a half years ago. TechMed itself is a little over three years old. Um, and I joined because a big part of my career has been, I have had done a lot of commodity price forecasting, and that involves a lot of supply-demand dynamic uh, analysis. So looking at you know where the markets are for certain metals and materials and commodities and potential new markets and how they may grow in the future. and And then also looking at the supply side, sort of what mines... producing and refining and recycling and and where that may, you know, if there is a certain demand, whether, you know, whether the the mining industry is going to be able to supply that. And of course, that will help you to decide or define where the price of that commodity might go. About three years ago, I could see, well, to me, it seemed pretty obvious that there was going to be this huge new area of demand for particular metals um, that are, as I say, feeding this you know the, the key ingredients really to these new technologies, such as lithium batteries and uh, renewable energy systems, the hardware. And I could see that it, there was really it was going to create a, a quite severe imbalance between the supply and demand dynamic because these a lot of these metals are quite small markets and it's quite difficult to be for, for the industry to generate quantums of new supply. And when you look at electric vehicle sales, and this is sort of when you look three years ago, actually. We sit here in 2021. um, The the sales figures are are actually have far surpassed sales figures of electric vehicles and uptake and installation of of renewable energy. Almost in every area has um, beaten everybody's expectation to the upside. Mm -hmm. I I was, you know, kind of right three years ago. But what we were looking at was um, when I joined Tetmet was saying, well, how is the industry going to supply this new demand area and at the end of the day, you know, Commodities 101 tells you that that is going to need a huge amount of new capital, and it's going to need higher prices. Um, And that means that you can try and find good investments that will develop good projects that can supply this this new demand area. Um, So that's what TechMet does. We look for projects that we can help develop, that can feed the supply chain of these technology metals. And we look at not just primary mining, but we look at processing and refining and recycling.
0: Great. And I understand that one of the big projects that's going on at the moment is exploring a lithium ion battery recycling facility here in the UK. Is that right? Yeah, we're certainly looking at it. Um, it's,
5: it it's something, it's, it's been challenging for a variety of reasons. It's lithium ion battery recycling it's definitely a growth area for sure. And it's something that we've been focused on for a long time. One of our key investments is a, that we've been funding for the past three years really is a lithium-ion battery recycling company in North America called Lifecycle. They were really ahead of the curve. It's something that, you know, it's not a huge market today because nobody's really needed a huge amount of lithium-ion battery recycling until now. Um, and even now, you know, the amount of batteries that are coming out of the market at the end of their life to be available for recycling is relatively small. But when you look at how many EVs are being sold now and how many will be sold over the next decade, that mm-hmm. curve is going to ramp up very steeply. And eventually, a lot of these are going to come back out of the market at the end of their life. Definitely a growth area. It's definitely a valuable area because unlike traditionalised vehicles where when you look at the sort of total money invested in a vehicle over its life, roughly, I'm talking very roughly here, but it's sort of 20, 80 percent for a ICE vehicle where 20 percent of the cost of owning a vehicle over its life is in the upfront cost of the vehicle and 80% is the petrol or diesel that you're buying to put in it.
0: Oh that's electric- depressing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah,
5: And um, an electric vehicle again nobody pulled me up on this number because I am making it just very simplistic but it's roughly 80-20 the other way so the electric vehicle is quite a big cost up front but a lot cheaper to run and um, for a variety of reasons not just because the electricity itself is cheaper but the maintenance cost is a hell of a lot lower as well because there's just less moving parts. There's less things in an electric vehicle, a full electric vehicle to, to maintain. You know, you don't need oil filter change and things like that. So um, so the total cost of ownership is, is actually a lot better, um, but it's flipped around. But anyway, so lithium-ion battery recycling, we've been looking at, um, yeah, establishing a facility in the UK. We're, st- we're st- still looking, to be honest, it's something that we're very interested in, um, but uh, we have the right technology we have the willingness, um, we're just trying to sort of pull all the pieces together.
0: Mm, because I was looking ahead of this and I realised that mainland Europe, I found, has 12 or more of these facilities and you mentioned that there are definitely some um in in the US and you've mentioned that the technology's there, so is it something to do with planning or government funding or skills pipeline or maybe all of the above or maybe I'm on the wrong track altogether? Um,
5: I don't think lack of skills in the UK or in Europe is a problem. I mean, we've got some of the best, you know, academic institutions and some of the smartest people on the planet that we can tap into. So I don't think that's a problem at all. Um, I think what you're looking at in Europe actually is a is a legacy issue that a lot of the facilities that are in Europe, at least really some of, are legacy technologies that have been co opted from doing something else and been changed slightly or used to recycle lithium ion batteries. Uh, The largest and a number of the others are using pyrometallurgical processes, where essentially it's like a giant furnace, and that's not the best solution in in our opinion. There are lower recovery rates. You can't recover all of the metals. You can't recover, you know, high percentages of a lot of the metals and and materials, and it's high cost and it is it's not the cleanest and it's not a closed loop solution. Um, But this is changing now with companies like Lifecycle that have um, using a different process called hydrometallurgy. So much more simple, clean, closed loop And cost-effective solution, but like I said, I think mostly it's a function of the market in that there was no particular demand for specific lithium-ion battery recycling and any volume until now.
0: That makes complete sense. And I was actually looking at some of the headlines um, around this, and they are about these sort of waste mountains of the of the future. So we wrote something a couple of years ago, and it was a warning from um, an academic report that 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 you know EV batteries are going to be the waste mountain of the future. Um, and then you just need to Google anywhere else and you'll see headlines like um, wind turbine blades are stacking up in in landfill because we can't recycle them. Um, and I wanted to get your thought on whether this has been a discussion that's really raised the importance of having a circular economy alongside the low carbon transition or whether this is being used in a roundabout way to say, you know what, we shouldn't do the low carbon transition because it's not circular yet. <laughs>
5: um I think that probably in the past yes there was a certain amount of rhetoric about the negative aspects of new technologies of lithium ion batteries electric vehicles and there and there still is a certain amount of focus um on the environmental environmental impact of extracting the metals in the first place but I think you know now here in 2021 I think that's kind of that's dying off I think you know the the quarter of public opinion has made its decision right that um you know this is what we want we want some more uh, a greener energy solution. We want a greener mobility solution. Um and this is the way we're going to do it. VW had a, a big presentation yesterday that they called a power day where they did a two hour presentation for, for shareholders and everybody else, um, talking about their electric vehicle solution. And they're really leading obviously Tesla is leading the charge as the only sort of you know the largest pure electric vehicle company. But VW in terms of the traditional OEMs is really leading the charge. And the CEO said right up I think it was probably the first statement he made, he said that um the path to a greener society is not possible without an electrification of mobility, without electric vehicles. So it's definitely gonna happen. But there is still there is still some slight um misinformation, I would say, or maybe use of slightly older information and statistics when considering the sort of negative or positive benefits of electric vehicles. Berkeley Lab in, in San Francisco just published in the last few days, I think, a really interesting report where they were looking at the sort of cost and environmental cost of the electrification for regional and long-haul trucking. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting, because trucking, you know, people have always assumed that light vehicles will be first to be electrified, and then other heavier vehicles will be a lot more difficult. But their study has basically shown that actually, even right now, it's cheaper as a total cost of ownership of a, a truck. It, it, I think in the US they've been looking at, but to the tune of about 13% over the total cost of ownership for the life of the truck. But also they looked at the environmental emissions of, of the total life cycle of the vehicle. And they said that they found that the only situation which where an electric truck right now would be negative compared to a diesel truck would be if the tr- electric truck was charged purely by coal generated electricity. And that's just that just can't happen. There's nowhere in, you know, the states. There's nowhere in Europe where you only get coal-fired power. I mean, you know, that's actually one of the interesting points when you're thinking about the uptake and the improvement of electric vehicles over time. That I think a lot of people don't really consider is that as soon as you put a a diesel or a, or a petrol car on the road its pollution generation is is fixed in that it's going to be burning petroleum over the life over its life and you're not going to improve that. In fact it's going to decline in efficiency over time. But an electric vehicle, you buy it today, you start charging it, you'll have your electricity your charging with will be a certain amount generated by renewable energy. That is improving rapidly right now. And it was going to continue to improve, especially as battery technology improves to in work in tandem with renewables. Um, so yes, and, and I think that will increase over time. It's interesting looking at places like the US where they seem to be, or the images that they're more wedded to fossil fuels than we are in Europe. Um, but actually, they're you know they are leading the charge in some respects. I think over the last decade, about 44% of new power installation was wind and solar. And last year, I think it was last year or maybe the year before, the the last Application to build a new coal-fired power station was actually retracted, so there's not going to be any new coal-fired power stations in a in a country, you know, in the US, which was really built on coal. You know, they have huge coal reserves still. So that's um that that's a really big sign for, for us that the system is changing. Um, but uh, so is the rhetoric sort of you know biased still? Maybe slightly, but uh, I think you know there, there's be there, there's some isolated incidences I think, but I, I think most people are pretty clued up now is to say that uh electric vehicles are definitely better for the environment in in the in its in totality than um, than the alternative
0: i was going to ask whether you guys are doing anything on like second life batteries because we've talked about like the sourcing we've talked about the in-use emissions and then we've talked about recycling but are you doing anything on sort of even before recycling just reusing the batteries as a as a whole Techmet isn't because
5: Techmet's focused on how can we how can we um find and develop projects that can increase the supply chain of the materials into the, the products into mm. lithium-ion batteries and you know electric motors and things like that so second life is not something that we would focus on developing ourselves but it is something i pay a lot of attention to because obviously it's part of my forecasting for looking at um uh, at recycling especially of lithium-ion batteries and it, it it's an interesting dynamic i think I th- I'm not sure my opinion is shared by many people, but uh, I think there is a when you're looking at Second Life using batteries that are at the end of their sort of practical use, and so for uh, vehicles that tends to be 80% charge. So we all know how lithium-ion batteries uh, work in you know because of our phones now that after a certain time the ability to retain charge degrades over time, and traditionally not always, but the consumer of an electric vehicle, when it gets to about 80% charge, the range starts to get to a worrying point where they'll take it off service. Now, that battery still has a lot of useful life in it for a different application, maybe a static application where it doesn't have to go through such stressful life cycles, you know, charging and discharging. But my, <laughs> my thinking of that is that at the moment, there is a large market for second use second life batteries, because the market, as I have mentioned earlier, the market for batteries available for recycling is actually quite small. And we don't have these huge recycling facilities, which Lifecycle and people like TechMed and Lifecycle are, are looking to build and are build. But I think there will be a tipping point where, you know, if you are a person who has or a company that has an end of life battery, there will come a point where it actually becomes more economic and better for everybody for you to recycle that than it is to go and put it into another application. And similarly that application, because the cost of producing a new battery will come down to a point where it's actually more cost effective for them to actually go and buy a new battery. Because at the moment, if you know the battery that they're buying that they're looking to buy for a home energy storage system, let's say, if that's $200 per kilowatt hour, then, you know, maybe buying a second life battery, which only has 80% of its usability is, is better. But there's going to be a crossover point, And I think probably quite soon where it's, you know, the cost to produce new batteries is lower, the cost to recycle is lower. And so there's, you know, there's going to be more demand for new r- rather than uh, second life batteries. Not that the market will disappear. I think there will always be a certain market for for some of those. Okay, so one of the things that I think a lot of people don't consider or really have maybe a a misconception of into the future is that the recycling is not going to be a complete solution and that we are going to need a lot of primary materials. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that where we're buying electric vehicles today, they are going to have a life and hopefully they're going to have quite a long life. They're going to be a good product. They're going to be on the road for 10 to 15 years, which is what we kind of expect a vehicle to last for. And so those batteries to come back in or come out of the market and be available for recycling. is You know, but a lot of it is going to be out there in use still. So. I mean, my forecasts say that, you know, even with the best will in the world, if we build out the recycling industry and we do an excellent job of collecting and recycling these lithium batteries from electric vehicles, we might be able to supply 10 percent of the demand by 2030. Mm. So we're still going to need 90 percent of lithium and nickel and cobalt from new mines. And to give you sort of a reference in the copper market, where which is a much larger market than a lot of these metals and is much more mature, we've been using copper in a lot of industrial applications for many, many decades. Even with the best recycling, and that, that is a huge recycling industry, copper recycling, and that can only produce that is only contributing about 30% of the world's demand for copper comes from recycling. So it's gonna be it's not gonna be a complete solution. It is gonna be an important part of the, but in terms of a closed loop, I don't think you'll ever reach a closed loop for lithium-ion batteries. You'll always need new. Um, you'll always need new and primary supply.
0: Yes, thanks once again to Simon, and he is the fourth and final interviewee, and is rounding off this episode. Matt, I hope you've enjoyed recording this episode as much as me. I don't know as you, but I feel both inspired and energised, but equally ready to to start the weekend.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think what the point you made about these twin disruptions of of net zero and and circular economy, some view them as kind of siloed agendas, but I think this the, the chats I've heard today have certainly proved that. There, there's mutually beneficial um, to to couple them together as part of a strategy. So it's been uh, it's been great, and I hope that the listeners, the ones that actually have to kind of set their strategy, for organisations feel the same.
0: Great, and you've taken the words right out of my mouth. Um, this is normally the part of the podcast uh, before signing off. I promote what we've got c- coming up next. Um, but aside from the fact that I'll have two more episodes of the podcast in. April, um, one about low carbon heating and one about Fashion Revolution Week. Um, I don't have much to to promote. Do you have any up, upcoming content or events you want to, to flag for the listeners, Matt?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, start of May, so just after those those two episodes of theirs, we're going to be we're going to be hosting another themed week of content, all focused on engagement, so corporate sustainability engagement. That's kind of internally against different departments and and on the ground staff. It's across the supply chain. Uh, engagement with stakeholders and consumers so how you know markets how to get your sustainability report in a in a kind of top condition it's going to be very similar to, to the circular economy week in the sense that there'll be some live sessions a themed podcast more interviews as well so be on the lookout for for news around that we've got a um, obviously we did the biodiversity podcast not too long ago uh we've got a webinar as part of that series coming up soon we've got caring and unilever speaking on that one so probably the two best businesses you could ask for on that so there will be uh, some information on ed.net uh, if you want to register for that um because yeah those two have have kind of gone to great lengths to kind of uh embed biodiversity as part of their environmental stewardship agendas and then i think beyond that all i start to turn to cop 26 and uh we will be having some uh, themed contents and reports and uh, discussions around that in due course so so watch this space
0: Great. Well, I hope to see you all tuning in for that. Um, If you're interested in that biodiversity webinar that Matt mentioned, the full information is at ed.net slash webinars. That's ed.net slash webinars. But until then, you can recap all of the Circular Economy Week content at ed.net using the specified tag. I think that's everything from us. All that remains is to thank Zero Waste Scotland once again for sponsoring this episode and saying goodbye. So until next time, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye.